Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. morning. How are we doing? Good. I'm Robert. I'm one of Crosspoint's pastors, and I'm glad to see you here today. Maybe you're visiting with us online. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. That's where we will be today. If you don't have a Bible, it'd be worth your time to do the the laborious work of leaning forward and grabbing one from the seat in front of you. And turning to 2 Kings chapter 5, it's conveniently located right after 1 Kings. And uh, if you need help finding it, ask your neighbor. They don't know where it is either, so you can find it together. 2 Kings chapter 5, this is an intricate, very literary account of a very important, but unfortunately leprous man, a military leader from Syria, and if you are not sure... Syrians and Israelites are not the best of friends, at least not at this time in history. Uh, the Syrians were pretty powerful and mighty, and they had a sort of temporary truce, just kind of some general good vibes between them for a little while here. That's when this is taking place. Um, maybe you're not familiar with the story of Naaman the leper. It's just tucked into Second Kings, but it is packed with so much going on. It's, it's one of those chapters, one of those stories, those narratives in Scripture that really reminds me, and I hope will remind you, of just how, how intricately woven God's Word is. I'm not kidding. We could spend two weeks on this text. We're not going to do that. Instead, we'll just spend two hours today. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that either. But there's a lot going on here. And so I want you to, to read along with me as we read. There, there is so much happening. There, there is greatness everywhere you look. And yet, despite Naaman's greatness, he is powerless to heal himself. He's powerless to buy his own healing. There is the faithfulness, the faithful witness of uh, a character here described as a little girl And then there is this humbling work of a powerful prophet. But then there's also restoration that happens. And restoration, that's a a really important word in this text. And it's particularly important for the one moment that it's not mentioned. And yet, there's spiritual wholeness at stake here, not just the cleansing of a man's skin. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack. So I want to pray for us and then we'll, we'll get right to it. Father, you have gathered your people this morning that they might be fed by your word, that we collectively might gather around your word together, that we would be nourished and that your name would be exalted. Help me to be a part of that. Help us to be attentive to what you would have for us today. We pray for uh, children's ministry going on down the hall. We ask your blessing over them for the children and the volunteers serving so faithfully. We thank you for the work that you're doing, not just in this room, but throughout this building. We ask that you would minister to all of us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I want to read this text. It's a long chapter. I want to read. I want to make some comments along the way, okay? And then I'll, I'll round this thing out with a few points uh, just uh, to, to make things clear. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1, Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Israel, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. We're not even going to talk about that, but the Lord is using this guy to bring victory to Syria. That's just worth noting. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, which is northern Israel. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive what this man, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Let's pause there. I mean, already you're getting a sense of some incredible highs and lows of social greatness going on among the various people in this narrative. You've got, you've got Naaman, who is a great man, a mighty man of valor. You know, as, as all you military guys know, the higher an authority you are, the greater a man you are, right? Is that, is that not it? Okay, well, Naaman, Naaman is that guy. Naaman is a great man. He's a mighty man. He's in favor with the king of Syria. Uh, the Lord is even using Naaman to bring about his purposes in the world in this strange, providential way. That's Naaman. But then you've got, okay, so there's the height, the, the, the highest of highs, the greatest person in this story so far. But then immediately we transition to, to a little girl from the land of Israel. And she's a, she's a servant in Naaman's house, the servant of Naaman's wife. We've just gone from this mighty man to this small little child, a girl, a servant. And then we have this rounded out picture, right, of these kings. And the Syrian king, he hears from Naaman and he understands that maybe there's some chance that his faithful commander can go get healed. And so he says, absolutely, I'll send a letter kind of giving you access to whatever you need there. I'll, I'll talk with the king of Israel. We'll make it happen. You got this important king, and then you've got an important king there in Israel. 
The Syrian king thinks that he can make it happen. The Israelite king is absolutely dismayed because he knows that he can't do it, and yet he expects of himself the sort of greatness that he should be able to make this happen. But he, he despairs because, because he thinks what's happening here is some sort of trick. Neither king is really of any avail in this story. The irony of Naaman's predicament is this, that he is great, but he is powerless to heal or cleanse himself. He is clueless, except for the vague memories of a small child kidnapped by Syrian forces and taken into slavery in Syria. She's his only hope, this great mighty man of valor. Let's keep going. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, this is the prophet that this little girl was referring to, heard that the king of Syria had torn his clothes, he sent to, or the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. That's a subtle little dig, isn't it? So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, And went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And notice what he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention that one word that that Elisha mentioned, restored. What he thinks Elijah's telling him to do is some sort of ritual, some sort of cleansing kind of thing that you can do and just sort of feel better. And he says, I, man, I could do that back home. So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and they said to him, and notice this, these are the servants talking. My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Elisha here has a very humbling ministry. Naaman's predicament is pretty serious, and Naaman's a pretty serious, important man. And Elisha, he is up to this point still totally invisible. He won't even deign to go visit Naaman. He doesn't even come out of his house. Naaman lines up all his chariots and horses and his servants, and they stand at the door of Elisha's house, and they're waiting there, and they're going to talk, and they're going to work out a deal, and they're going to make something happen, and Naaman's going to be healed, and it's going to be on the front pages of the paper, and it's going to be awesome and miraculous and incredible. The whole world will know about it. And Elisha won't even come to the door. 
he sends a messenger instead. <laughs> and the messenger basically reads off like a prescription from a doctor. He says, ah, well, you probably, so you're going to go down to this river, okay, and you're going you're gonna to get in it, and you're going to dunk yourself, I don't know, seven times. And you're going to get wet, but then you're going you're to be, be restored, and you're going to get out, and you'll be clean, good as new. So that's what he said, so I'm going to leave that with you. All right. And he walks away. That's it. There's nothing, there's nothing glorious about that. It's kind of, well, you know, it's a little humiliating. Uh, it's certainly frustrating. Naaman's a mighty man of valor, right? But Elisha, he, he humbles him from the very moment. He sends a messenger. He tells him to go wash in the Jordan River. And Naaman's not wrong. There are probably better rivers to go wash in. Naaman's great expectations, however, yield only anger and rage. He says, couldn't I wash in these other rivers and therefore be clean? But you notice, we noticed, he, he forgets one word. He, he, he didn't notice that Elisha is talking about more than just ritual cleanness. But Elisha is talking about something that will bring about total restoration for this man. And, and as we'll find out, it's far more than Naaman or any of us really realize and expect to happen. His servants are helpful, though, because they point out that this is a very simple act of faith that's being mentioned. And it's actually a very simple act of faith that's being avoided, potentially, if Naaman doesn't go through with it. The NIV, the New International Version, and a lot of other English translations, in fact, most English translations, translate this little sentence from the, from the servants differently. And I think it's really helpful. In the NIV, it says, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you merely... Wash and be cleansed. In other words, he's saying, you're, the, the, it's like the servants are saying, you expect something great and amazing to happen here. And, and you are holding out for something incredible, something that shows some sort of height or great depth that you have to go to to reach this end, something that will really be just fireworks in your eyes. But what he's telling you to do is actually pretty simple. You'd be willing to run a marathon to make this happen, and he simply told you to take a, a little bath in a dingy old river. Come on, if that's all you got to do, why not? And the ESV, I think, gets around to it, and that's the translation we've been reading, because they're, they're also in a similar way in that translation saying essentially, man, this is the great thing. You want to do something great. This is a great word. He simply told you to wash and be clean. And of course, they, in the ESV, it kind of suggests too, has, is that really all he said? Because it's, it's not really all he said. He mentioned restoration in that command. This, there, there's more going on than meets Naaman's eye in this story. But if he would simply exert simple, humble obedience of faith in God's word and work, something incredible is primed to happen. And so he finally does that. He simply swallows his pride, takes Elisha's messenger at his word, walks into the river, dunks himself seven times, and it says, and I think this is important, that his 
flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Now, we've already actually met a little child. And it's that simple sort of faith that Naaman needed to become just like her. Let's keep going in verse 15. So, Naaman returned to the man of God. He and all his company, and he came and stood before him. Okay, so once again, here Naaman is standing before Elisha with all of his horses and all of his men, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And you remember, Naaman has brought with him incredible wealth. All this silver, all this gold, 10 outfits. I mean, he came expecting to unload wealth that no one in Israel had ever seen on one man if he would simply do this for him. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, of of dirt, of ground. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. And this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon, which is the Syrian version of like Baal, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I inevitably bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi The servant, here's another servant, of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say... There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. Gehazi went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. 
I'm telling you, this story, it's, in, it's incredible. I mean, there's just so much going on. We don't even meet Gehazi until the very end. And, and it just reveals unknown depths to everything else that's already happened. We're getting so many comparisons and contrasts between Gehazi and Elisha, his master, between Gehazi and Naaman, and the, the type of faith that they exhibit, between Naaman and this little girl who's a servant, but also between this little girl who's a servant and the servants of Naaman and the servant of Elisha. I mean, there's just so much going on here that we have to kind of weave in and out of, and we can't possibly unpack it all. Let me, let me try to just give you a little more kind of sense of things here. At the, at the very end, I mean, this, this concluding section, we see Naaman's humble faith and Gehazi's deceptive, cynical heart. Naaman has an incredible change of heart take place. You saw it happen right there. He goes from, a seat, from seeking Elisha's power... He brings all this wealth to give just to Elisha because he knows if this man can do it, this is worth everything to me. He gives him everything. He goes from seeking Elisha's power to worshiping Elisha's God. That, that is, that's a twist. That's a turn. He goes from entitlement, I'll just go to, I'll go to Israel, I'll talk to that guy. I'll pay him whatever he needs, and uh, this is going to work out. This is all going to be just fine. I don't know why he's from Brooklyn. Anyway, he goes, he just goes expecting this to happen. From entitlement to abasement. Here in this concluding section, Naaman refers to himself not once, not twice, but five times as a servant He says, I'm your servant, Elisha. By extension, I'm the servant of your God. At the very beginning, Naaman's king calls him my servant. But here, Naaman has flipped the table. He says, no, 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 no. I am the servant of Elisha and his God. This results in clear obedience from his heart. Despite maybe the outward appearance of what his job requires of him, see, he's still, he's still got to go, you know, work the daily grind as a commander in the Syrian army. The Syrian king is still expecting him to be literally his right-hand man so that when the king goes in to worship his God, Naaman's still got to go right there with him. But Naaman says, look, this is not where I want to be, you understand? I will only worship the one true God of Israel. In fact, I'm so serious about this. I'm going to make myself an altar using the dirt from Israel so that I can worship Israel's God and, and give my devotion solely to him. I'm not even going to mix my worship of Israel's God with the dirt of Syria. I'm serious about this. But you got to know, when I go into this house of worship of Baal, of Ramon, my heart's not there. Will you understand that? Can you understand that? I'm, I'm the king's right-hand man. He bends down to bow to the king. I got to kind of lower myself with him because he, he's leaning on me. And Elisha, it's like he doesn't think anything of it. He says, man, get out of here. Go on home. I get it. Contrast this, however, with Gehazi. We, look, we, got, we got the servant girl at the beginning. Right? She's just the model of faithfulness. And we'll talk more about her in a second. We got Naaman's servants. And they're models of simple faith and obedience, right? They say, man, look, this is, this is all he's asking you to do. Gee, I'd do it. I'd probably do it. You should do it. And he goes. 
When you see the servant of the man of God, you're thinking, whoa, this guy is definitely going to understand. This guy is going to get it. But it turns out he's a complete knucklehead. He is a, he's the epitome of faithlessness. He can't imagine a wealthy Syrian soldier being healed without any payment whatsoever. It just doesn't make sense. He sees in God's work not an opportunity to glorify the Lord and worship him, but in fact, an opportunity to get rich. He's nothing whatsoever like his master, Elijah. In fact, he, he lies to Elisha and in the name of Elisha and by extension in the name of Elisha's God. He speaks for Elisha straight up lies. I mean, he, he is the complete opposite of virtually every person in this story so far. All right, I got four points for you. Four points. Number one, the Lord is pleased Listen to this. The Lord is pleased to use little people and mundane things to accomplish his glorious purposes. The Lord is pleased to use little people and mundane things to accomplish his glorious purposes. Uh, not, not long ago, um, Sigourney and I celebrated our 10th uh, wedding anniversary and we took a trip to San Francisco and we were, uh, I don't know how you are when you plan trips. I, I tend to be more of a control freak. Like I kind of want to know where I'm going before I walk in there. Uh, it's really more for my safety than anything else. And so when we travel places, even when it comes to like finding places to eat, I really want to know the lay of the land before I just walk around and kind of stumble into basically a Waffle House and regret not eating across the street. That's something that could have been really awesome. There's a little bit of FOMO in that, you understand? Nevertheless, I do a lot of recon before I go places especially big cities. I want to know what I'm getting into. I want to know what I'm going to eat. It's important, okay? So one day we're walking through some part of San Francisco that I hadn't really planned on actually being in. And it was lunchtime. And in all my scouting and recon, I hadn't thought of where we would eat in this place that I didn't think we were ever going to be. And so I was clueless. I had no idea what we were going to eat, what we were going to do. I didn't know. And so we're just walking around, and, and it was a little crowded, and I get a little jittery like looking at my phone in large crowds, because anyway, right, it's, it's whatever. These are not my problems. That's not what you came here for. Okay, so I'm frantically trying to find a place, you know, and thank, thank the Lord for smartphones where you can find places to eat. But I'm looking through the list of all the stuff in my general vicinity, and nothing's really striking me. And there's a lot of stars, and they're four stars, and that's five stars. A lot of people like that. Well, that one's expensive. I mean, there's all sorts of options, but I just can't really nail it down, and, and it's difficult to, to figure out where we're going. And so I look up, and I see a sign for something, and it looks pretty run down, but it just says, Arts Cafe. Like art, like Arthur. He's got a cafe, and it's here on this corner, and he makes food. So I'll look it up. Then maybe, you know, who knows? Diamond in the rough? I don't know. So I'm looking it up, and it's like cheeseburgers and chicken fingers and like patty melts and stuff like that, kind of just diner food. Now, this is as good a place as any, you know, and I'm hungry. So we, we go to Art's Cafe. We walk in, the counter service is all packed, and there's nowhere to sit inside. So we sit outside. I'm thinking, this is a mistake. This is, this is a mistake. We sit down on the sidewalk at this little table, 
And there's this like street car coming by. It was kind of neat, but I'm a little worried that whatever we're about to eat is really probably going to be like deeply regretful. I don't know if you know this, but San Francisco is not like, it's not a cheap place to just find food. And so I'm really like, uh, we got to make this count. This may be all we eat today, you know? We're sitting there looking at each other, worried about what it is we're going to eat. And I'm looking at the menu. Well, actually, the, the waiter brings out the menu. And he's got a mask on. But, but I could tell by his voice that he had some sort of like Asian ancestry, some sort of Asian heritage. So we're, we're talking, you know, and, and, uh, and just getting to know. He's really friendly. He's asking about us. He accuses my wife of having a very deep southern accent, which was a shock to us. And there's a whole thing. But I finally, I look at the menu. And there at the bottom of the menu, underneath the patty melts and the cheeseburgers and the artery-clogging stuff, there is a whole, a whole like, section of Korean food here at Art's Diner. Arts Cafe, rather. It's more classy than a diner. It's a cafe. And I'm looking at and there's all these Korean dishes that we can get. And I, I happen to like Korean food. And I was really kind of hoping to get some Korean food when I'm there in San Francisco. It feels like a good place to find some of that. And we just stumbled upon it. So we're getting to know the guy. Turns out, Art is the waiter's dad. And they had like immigrated from Korea. And they bought this little shop and they're selling Korean food and patty melts. And so I got some Korean food, and I want to wrap this story up. It was awesome. It was great Korean food. Yeah, yes, it was great. Right here in the middle of nowhere in San Francisco, I just stumbled upon this great, fantastic, authentic Korean experience. And I'll never be able to replicate it. But I didn't expect it there. It came out of nowhere. This is an unnecessary diversion. Anyway... The Lord uses things, unexpected things, things that you would say, there's no way anything good is coming from here or from them. And he does incredible things. He does miraculous things. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here in the story, we have a little girl. We have an unspectacular river. We have a prophet who won't even reveal his face. But all of this is pointing to the unexpected greatness and seemingly hidden majesty and glory of God's final, full, capital P, prophet, Jesus. I hope you see that, right? Here, the Lord is doing something that you would not have expected. And in the gospel, I mean, that, that is exactly what happens. Jesus is, is the, he, Philippians says this, and we, we read this a moment ago. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That's our gospel hope. That's the good news it's not something that we would immediately recognize as incredible and awesome, a defeated king dying on a cross like a criminal. Where's the glory in that? Where's the hope in that? Where's the restoration there? And yet that's exactly how the Lord works. 
That was his plan from eternity past, that he would send his son in this unassuming way, that he would be born into a manger, that he would grow up in relative poverty, that he would have a ministry among 12 guys, one of whom betrays him, and that he would die like a thief. so that he might restore God's people to himself. This is is how the Lord works. This is what he delights to do is is use mundane little things. I, I wonder if you feel maybe too small and powerless for the Lord to use. I mean, if that's the case, I think you're in the right spot. Because the Lord delights It pleases him to use people who are weak and powerless. It does. Maybe you feel that way about your church or your pastors. I don't know if the Lord can, is the Lord really here? Maybe there's there's greener grass. Maybe you feel that way about spiritual disciplines, like the simple things of just reading the Bible, praying, even when you really just don't feel it. The Lord uses these means of grace to do incredible things long-term, mighty things in the lives of his people, in, in his church, in the world. I think sometimes we really get caught up in seeing, you know, and this, this, is, a, this is an easy example, in seeing the, the, the power and clout and notoriety of like celebrity Christians. Because for whatever reason, we feel like that's something more primed for the Lord to use. But how many of you came to faith because a celebrity shared the gospel with you? Right? That, that's, not, that's typically not how the Lord works. Uh, but the Lord uses the, the humble faithfulness of his people in everyday moments, the weaknesses that they have, their own faults and failures and shortcomings. He uses the whole thing and he brings glory to himself and restoration in life to his people. Number two, the Lord is not beholden to anyone's greatness, power, or might. And you can't manipulate God. You can't buy him off. God's favor, his power is unable to be bought, sold, or manipulated. Which for people who think that they are worthy of that sort of thing and have the glory and the greatness that would make them deserving of that, that's, that's the worst possible news, right? And that's hell. To have power or think you do, but not be able to control God, man, that's, that's a nightmare. But when you yield to the Lord and, and when you realize that he does what pleases him, and that in fact, salvation itself generously overflows from a God who delights, loves to save and cleanse even his enemies by faith, Man, when you're in that place, that's a good place to be. When you see that for what it is, I think of Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. We're not going to read that story, but here's a man who sees some incredible things being done among the disciples. The Holy Spirit is given to people and and miraculous things are taking place. And he goes to Simon and he says, look, man, I'll write you a check. What what do we got to do? How can I get this? And Simon utterly rebukes him and he says, man, get out of here with that. What are you talking about? You can't buy the gift of God. You can't can't 
pay God for, you can't procure the power and the authority of Almighty God with a checkbook. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I wonder, do you think God owes you anything or that you can repay God? They're kind of two, two sides of the same coin. I'll, I, God, you know, quid pro quo. I'll give you this, you give me this. I'll, I'll go to church, I'll be this kind of person, I'll say these things, I'll put myself in these places. I'll, you know, hey, man, I want to, come on. You, you give me what I'm asking for. There's, there's also, though, the, the, the other side of that coin where, where the Lord has blessed, where the Lord has given, where the Lord has granted salvation itself. And, and you spend the rest of your life thinking, how can I make up for this? Because clearly I need to pay the Lord back. There is a trade here. But in, in both those places, you're expecting that the Lord's gift, that the Lord's purposes and, and power and grace in your life can be something that you control or that you can thwart or that you can lose because of your fitness and because of what you bring to the table. That's not, that's not the case. Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. You don't bring anything less to, to the table than that. Number three, the Lord honors and uses humble faith. He honors and uses humble faith. I think one of the main themes of this text is just the unpredictability of faith itself. If you recall, several months ago, we were in John chapter 3, and in verse 8, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I mean, think of, think of the cast of characters here in this narrative. We have a little girl, and she really is the brightest star in this whole text of faithfulness to the Lord. Think about it. She's been taken from her homeland as a child, and yet she clings to her memories of the Lord's work in that place. She clings to the hope of God's people there in Israel. There's a beauty to the very simple faith that she has and her confidence and submission to God. She goes to her mistress. She says, look, I know a guy that could clear this right up. She's not worried about the cost. She's not worried about how you get there. She's not worried about whether or not she should even be speaking up this way. She just boldly kind of goes to her mistress. Hey, here's the thing that you should probably think about. Talk to your man about it and talk with me. I'll let you know what you need to do. He's a man of God. I mean, she's deeply faithful. It's very simple and yet very powerful. She knows her heritage in a hostile land. I was thinking, man, the... The way the culture we live in today is, is so hostile to God's people. Frankly, it always has been. I think we just see new ways of that being the case every day. But there is, there is a tremendous foundation that we have in knowing the foundation, knowing the heritage of, of the hope that we have in Christ. I mean, you can weather any sort of cultural upheaval. You can be kidnapped and taken away in service of the enemy himself. But if you know who you are in the Lord, if you know who Jesus is and what he has done, if you know the man of God and the power that he has to bring restoration and wholeness to God's people, what, what are you afraid of? What is there to be afraid of? 
And likewise, what is there that can keep you from being used by the Lord to do incredible things? Right? This is relevant. This is not the point of the text, but I think this is a really important thing for us to consider, especially in light of this being described as a little girl. You know, our, our culture seeks to, to empower women, you know, by oftentimes very destructive means. I think we all see that, and we, we can think of examples of that, where our culture values things in women that really Scripture does not value, that God does not value, and, and it leads to pain and suffering and difficulty. But, but our world is constantly looking to, to elevate and, 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 and really put women in a position where they have to be and do and say everything right. And it starts... At a young age, what I find so profound here is, is the simple faithfulness of this little girl. It's beautiful. And it's what the Lord uses to do incredible, great, mighty, his name exalting things. If, if, you're, if you're a middle school girl, an elementary age girl in here, do you know that by just like trusting in the Lord and yielding to him and entrusting yourself to him and cherishing what he says in his word, do you know that there is, there is nothing more that you need to be valuable for his kingdom? Like, there's nothing more that you got to do. There's, nothing, there's no way you have to look. There's no, there's no way you have to present yourself to this world but with the, the, the beautiful humility of following and serving the Lord. And that's not just true for, for women. That's, that's true for all of us, right? It's not just true for the young. It's true, it's true for everyone. But I, I find just reading this story, I think of my own daughter. I think of all the daughters in this church and I think what a powerful example this is and, and how worthy it is for us as God's people to, to pursue that and push that and encourage that and foster that in the lives of our church. Man, there, there, there's, there's really nothing more countercultural than that. We've seen her faithfulness. We've seen the Syrian commander's faithfulness. The mighty man is converted into a servant. You know, Springer read earlier, the greatest among you will be your servant. And, and, and here, Naaman does just that. He has genuine faith and thoughtful obedience. We see, we see Elisha's humility, his humble faith. He refuses to take credit. He refuses to receive payment. Because he wants all the glory to go to the Lord. He won't even go down to the river because he doesn't want to make any mistake about who has done this work. It's not Elisha. You're not paying Elisha. Now, exalt the Lord. He's, he's the one who has done this. All of this is, is in painful contrast, however, with the servant of the man of God, Gehazi. I mean, he's an example of faith, faithlessness and greed. First Timothy 6.5 says that, there's a type of person who is depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And that's who, <clears throat> that's who Gehazi is. That's who he shows himself to be. He sees the grace of the Lord in the lives of other people, not as something to be celebrated and enjoyed and reveled in and glorify the Lord for, but rather as a, a cynical way to benefit himself. 
But, and this is point number four, the Lord is not a means of greatness. Rather, he is our greatest good. See, Gehazi's fault here, his problem, like Simon in Acts 8, is that he appropriated grace for his own personal glory. He appropriated grace for his own personal glory. See, it's possible for us to play the part like Gehazi does. I mean, he, he uses Elisha's words. He speaks in Elisha's name. And yet his heart is nowhere near the Lord. His heart is very far from the Lord. Because, truthfully, he sees in the Lord really a means to his own personal ends of glory and riches. He sees in God's people, even the conversion, the miraculous, incredible conversion of the Syrian commander, he really sees nothing more than an opportunity for him to to get rich. Now, brothers and sisters, I mean, we we come to the Lord, we, we want to exalt him, and I think it's an easier temptation for us to slip into than we may realize to seek our own glory even as we come before the Lord together, to seek our own glory as we disciple one another and, and, and hopefully speak words of wisdom and truth to each other. It's easy for me as a pastor to want to seek my own glory, to, to exult in my own abilities, to the exclusion of the glory of the Lord. What happens to Gehazi is that his, it, what, it turns out that this is not just some sort of fault of his. It's not just like a chink in his armor. But it demonstrates that he is utterly faithless. Because what happens to him is that he ends up receiving in his body the very thing that Naaman's faith eradicated. The leprosy that he walks away with. 1 Corinthians 1 30 through 31, finishing Paul's thought there about weakness and foolishness and the Lord's eager desire to use even weak things to shame the strong. He says, because of him, because of the Lord, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are you preoccupied with greatness? but overlooking the, the grace of restoration. That's exactly what happened to Naaman until his servants graciously stepped in and slapped him around a little bit. Wholeness is our greatest need. We need to be made whole. And only the Lord can do that. See, Naaman's leprosy was not the result of his sin, at least not that we know of. That's not the point of the text. There's never any sort of attribution given there as to why he has this leprosy. But leprosy throughout Scripture, and certainly in his case, does still serve as a reminder of our uncleanness and unworthiness before the Lord. Naaman is living with death itself on his skin in his body, and there is no escaping it. It doesn't matter how wicked or mighty or whatever he is. He is still living this side of the fall 
which means that really by nature, apart from anything that he can do, he stands as an enemy before God. He stands unworthy of the presence of the Lord. And what he needs, what we all need, is wholeness and restoration. However, in in Naaman's story, that that restoration, it, it comes from the Lord. But you notice it comes very separate, very distinct, distinct from Elisha. Elisha's not there with him. Elisha's not holding his hand. Elisha doesn't even tell him what to do because Elisha doesn't want to take glory for himself. But for us to be restored, for us to find wholeness before the Lord and worthiness to enter his throne, we don't have a prophet who's, who's sitting backstage waiting to just kind of see what we'll do. We have a prophet in Jesus who comes and takes us by the hand, who walks us right down to the river itself, pushes us in, and brings about exactly what he has commanded of us. In in Jesus, we, we don't have absence. We have God's powerful presence in and among us. And that presence brings restoration. It brings wholeness. It brings cleansing from sin, death, and hell itself. Trust in him. Call him your master and be his servant. Let's pray. Father, we, th- we thank you, we praise you for your word to us. We thank you for this truth that, that you have reminded us of so, um, so powerfully. That you love to use weak people. You love to use mundane things. You love to use humble faith. Simple obedience. These, these are the things that you've called us to. We confess, though, that we we want glory for ourselves. We want to use our glory for our own purposes. We think that we have something that we can barter with you. But Lord, help us to see we come before you empty-handed. We have nothing. There is nothing that we can bring to manipulate your will or wield your grace. So Lord, would you, would you help us to revel in it instead? To delight in your kindness to us, to be reminded of your love and faithfulness for your people, that you delight in bringing wholeness, forgiveness, salvation to your people, as you have done it through Jesus Christ. A, a humble king who condescended to dwell among us, subjecting himself to all the things of this world, and yet who reigns and rules even now in his throne. We want to worship him together. I pray that you would bind our hearts together around him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.